Section 20 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 The Decline and Fall of the Whig Ministry, Part 2. The Stockdale case was a disturbance of ministerial repose which at one time threatened to bring about a collision between the privileges of Parliament and the authority of the law courts the messieurs hansard the well-known parliamentary printers had published certain parliamentary reports on prisons in which it happened that a book published by j j stockdale was described as obscene and disgusting in the extreme stockdale proceeded against the hansards for libel the hansards pleaded the authority of parliament but lord chief justice denman declared that the house of commons was not parliament and had no authority to sanction the publication of libels on individuals out of this contradiction of authorities arose a long and often a very unseemly squabble the house of commons would not give up its privileges the law courts would not admit its authority judgment was given by default against the hansards in one of the many actions for libel which arose out of the affair and the sheriffs of london were called on to seize and sell some of the hansard's property to satisfy the demands of the plaintiff the unhappy sheriffs were placed as the homely old saying would describe it between the devil and the deep sea if they touched the property of the hansards they were acting in contempt of the privilege of the house of commons and were liable to be committed to newgate if on the other hand they refused to carry out the orders of the court of queen's bench that court would certainly send them to prison for the refusal the reality of their dilemma was in fact very soon proved the amount of the damages was paid into the sheriff's court in order to avoid the scandal of a sale but under protest the house of commons ordered the sheriffs to refund the money to the hansards the court of queen's bench was moved for an order to direct the sheriffs to pay it over to stockdale the sheriffs were finally committed to the custody of the sergeant-at-arms for contempt of the house of commons the court of queen's bench served a writ of habeas corpus on the sergeant-at-arms calling on him to produce the sheriffs in court the house directed the sergeant-at-arms to inform the court that he held the sheriffs in custody by order of the commons the sergeant-at-arms took the sheriffs to the court of queen's bench made his statement there his explanation was declared reasonable and sufficient and he marched his prisoners back again a great deal of this ridiculous sort of thing went on which it is not now necessary to describe in any detail the house of commons what with the arrest of the sheriffs and of agents acting on behalf of the pertinacious stockdale had on their hands batches of prisoners with whom they did not know in the least what to do the whole affair created immense popular excitement mingled with much ironical laughter at last the house of commons had recourse to legislation and lord john russell brought in a bill on march third eighteen forty to afford summary protection to all persons employed in the publication of parliamentary papers the preamble of the measure declared that whereas it is essential to the due and effectual discharge of the functions and duties of parliament that no obstruction should exist to the publication of the reports papers votes or proceedings of either house 
as such house should deem fit it is to be lawful for any person or persons against whom any civil or criminal proceedings shall be taken on account of such publications to bring before the court a certificate under the hand of the lord chancellor or the speaker stating that it was published by the authority of the house and the proceedings should at once be stayed this bill was run quickly through both houses not without some opposition or at least murmur in the upper house and it became law on april fourteenth it settled the question satisfactorily enough although it certainly did not define the relative rights of parliament and the courts of law no difficulty of the same kind has since arisen the sheriffs and the other prisoners were discharged from custody after a while and the public excitement went out in quiet laughter the question however was a very serious one and it is significant that public opinion was almost entirely on the side of the law courts and the sheriffs the ministry must have so fallen in public favour as to bring the house of commons into disrepute along with them or such a sentiment could not have prevailed so widely out of doors the public seemed to see nothing in the whole affair but a tyrannical house of commons wielding illimitable powers against a few humble individuals some of whom the sheriffs for instance had no share in the controversy except that imposed on them by official duty accordingly the sheriffs were the heroes of the hour and were toasted and applauded all over the country assuredly it was an awkward position for the house of commons to be placed in when it had to vindicate its privileges by committing to prison men who were merely doing a duty which the law courts imposed on them it would have been better probably if the government had more firmly asserted the rights of the house of commons at the beginning and thus allowed the public to see the real question which the whole controversy involved nothing can be more clear now than the paramount importance of securing to each house of parliament an absolute authority and freedom of publication no evil that can possibly arise out of the misuse of such a power could be anything like that certain to come of a state of things which restricted by libel laws or otherwise the right of either house to publish whatever it thought proper for the public good not a single measure for the reform of any great grievance from the abolition of slavery to the passing of the factory acts but might have been obstructed and perhaps even prevented if the free exposure of existing evils were denied to the houses of parliament in this country parliament only works through the power of public opinion a social reform is not carried out simply by virtue of the decision of a cabinet that something ought to be done the attention of the legislature and of the public has to be called to the grievance again and again by speeches resolutions debates and divisions before there is any chance of carrying a measure on the subject when public opinion is ripe and is strong enough to help the government through with a reform in spite of prejudices and vested interests then and not till then the reform is carried but it would be hardly possible to bring the matter up to this stage of growth if those who were interested in upholding a grievance had the power of worrying the publishers of the parliamentary reports by legal proceedings in the earlier stages of the discussion nor would it be of any use to protect merely the freedom of debate in parliament itself 
it is not through debate but through publication that the public opinion of the country is reached in truth the poorer a man is the weaker and the humbler the greater need is there that he should call out for the full freedom of publication to be vested in the hands of parliament the factory child the climbing boy the apprentice under colonial systems of modified slavery the seaman sent to sea in the rotten ship the woman clad in unwomanly rags who sings her song of a shirt the other woman almost literally unsexed in form function and soul who in her filthy trousers of sacking dragged on all fours the coal trucks in the mines these are the tyrants and the monopolists for whom we assert the privilege of parliamentary publication the operations which took place about this time in syria belong perhaps rather to the general history of the ottoman empire than to that of england but they had so important a bearing on the relations between this country and france and are so directly connected with subsequent events in which england bore a leading part that it would be impossible to pass them over without some notice here mohammed ali pasha of egypt the most powerful of all the sultan's feudatories a man of iron will and great capacity both for war and administration had made himself for a time master of syria by the aid of the warlike qualities of his adopted son ibrahim pasha he had defeated the armies of the port wherever he had encountered them mohammed's victories had for the time compelled the port to allow him to remain in power in syria but the sultan had long been preparing to try another effort for the reduction of his ambitious vassal in eighteen thirty nine the sultan again declared war against mohammed ali ibrahim pasha again obtained an overwhelming victory over the turkish army the energetic sultan mahmoud a man not unworthy to cope with such an adversary as mohammed ali died suddenly and immediately after his death the capitan pasha or lord high admiral of the ottoman fleet went over to the egyptians with all his vessels an act of almost unexampled treachery even in the history of the ottoman empire it was evident that turkey was not able to hold her own against the formidable mohammed and his successful son and the policy of the western powers of europe and of england especially had long been to maintain the ottoman empire as a necessary part of the common state system the policy of russia was to keep up that empire as long as it suited her own purposes to take care that no other power got anything out of turkey and to prepare the way for such a partition of the spoils of turkey as would satisfy russian interests russia therefore was to be found now defending turkey and now assailing her the course taken by russia was seemingly inconsistent but it was only inconsistent as the course of a sailing ship may be which now tacks to this side and now to that but has a clear object in view and a port to reach all the while england was then and for a long time after steadily bent on preserving the turkish empire and in a great measure as a rampart against the schemes and ambitions imputed to russia herself france was less firmly set on the maintenance of turkey and france moreover had got it into her mind that england had designs of her own on egypt austria was disposed to go generally with england 
Prussia was little more than a nominal sharer in the alliance that was now tinkered up. It is evident that such an alliance could not be very harmonious or direct in its action. It was, however, effective enough to prove too strong for the Pasha of Egypt. A fleet made up of English, Austrian, and Turkish vessels bombarded Acre. An allied army drove the Egyptians from several of their strongholds. Ibrahim Pasha, with all his courage and genius, was not equal to the odds against which he now saw himself forced to contend. He had to succumb. No one could doubt that he and his father were incomparably better able to give good government and the chances of development to Syria than the port had ever been. But in this instance, as in others, the odious principle was upheld by England and her actual allies that the Turkish Empire must be maintained at no matter what cost of suffering and degradation to its subject peoples. Muhammad Ali was deprived of all his Asiatic possessions, but was secured in his government of Egypt. A convention signed in London on July 15, 1840, arranged for the imposition of those terms on Muhammad Ali. The convention was signed by the representatives of Great Britain, Austria, Prussia, and Russia on the one part, and the Ottoman port on the other. The name of France was not found there. France had drawn back from the alliance, and for some time seemed as if she was likely to take arms against it. Monsieur Thiers was then her prime minister. He was a man of quick fancy, restless and ambitious temperament, and what we cannot help calling a vulgar spirit of national self-sufficiency. We are speaking now of the Thiers of 1840, not of the wise and capable statesman, tempered and tried by the fire of adversity, who reorganized France out of the ruin and welter of 1870. Thiers persuaded himself and the great majority of his countrymen that England was bent upon driving Mohammed Ali out of Egypt, as well as out of Syria, and that her object was to obtain possession of Egypt for herself. For some months it seemed as if war were inevitable between England and France, although there was not in reality the slightest reason why the two states should quarrel. France was just as far away from any thought of a really disinterested foreign policy as England. England, on the other hand, had not the remotest idea of becoming the possessor of Egypt. Fortunately, Louis-Philippe and M. Guizot were both strongly in favor of peace. M. Thiers resigned, and M. Guizot became Minister of Foreign Affairs, and virtually head of the government. Thiers defended his policy in the French chamber in a scream of passionate and almost hysterical declamation. Again and again he declared that his mind had been made up to go to war if England did not at once give way and modify the terms of the Convention of July. It cannot be doubted that Thiers carried with him much of the excited public feeling of France, but the king and Monsieur Guizot were happily supported by the majority in and out of the chambers, and on July 13, 1841, the Treaty of London was signed, which provided for the settlement of the affairs of Egypt on the basis of the arrangement already made, and which contained, moreover, the stipulation, to be referred to more than once hereafter, by which the Sultan declared himself firmly resolved to maintain the ancient principle of his empire, that no foreign ship of war was to be admitted into the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, with the exception of light vessels for which a firman was granted. The public of this country had taken but little interest in the controversy about Egypt, 
at least until it seemed likely to involve England in a war with France. Some of the episodes of the war were indeed looked upon with a certain satisfaction by people here at home. The bravery of Charles Napier, the hot-headed self-conceited Commodore, was enthusiastically extolled, and his feats of successful audacity were glorified as though they had shown the genius of a Nelson or the clever resource of a Cochrane. Not many of Napier's admirers cared a rush about the merits of the quarrel between the port and the pasha. Most of them would have been just as well pleased if Napier had been fighting for the pasha and against the port. Not a few were utterly ignorant as to whether he was fighting for port or for pasha. Those who claimed to be more enlightened had a sort of general idea that it was in some way essential to the safety and glory of England that whenever Turkey was in trouble we should at once become her champions, tame her rebels, and conquer her enemies. Unfounded as were the suspicions of Frenchmen about our designs upon Egypt, they can hardly be called very unreasonable. Even a very cool and impartial Frenchman might be led to the conclusion that free England would not, without some direct purpose of her own, have pledged herself to the cause of a base and decaying despotism. Steadily, meanwhile, did the ministry go from bad to worse. They had greatly damaged their character by the manner in which they had again and again put up with defeat and consented to resume or retain office on any excuse or pretext. They were remarkably bad administrators. Their finances were wretchedly managed. In later times we have come to regard the Tories as especially weak in the matter of finance. A well-managed revenue and a comfortable surplus are generally looked upon in some way or other as the monopoly of a liberal administration, while lavish expenditure, deficit, and increased taxation counted among the necessary accompaniments of a Tory government. So nearly does public opinion on both sides go to accepting these conditions that there are many Tories who take it rather as a matter of pride that their leaders are not mean economists and who regard a free-handed expenditure of the national revenue as something peculiarly gentlemanlike and in keeping with the honourable traditions of a great country party. But this was not the idea which prevailed in the days of the Melbourne ministry. Then the universal conviction was that the Whigs were incapable of managing the finances. The budget of the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mr. Baring, showed a deficiency of nearly two millions. This deficiency he proposed to meet in part by alteration in the sugar duties, but the House of Commons, after a long debate, rejected his proposals by a majority of thirty-six. It was then expected, of course, that ministers would resign, but they were not yet willing to accept the consequences of defeat. They thought they had another stone in their sling. Lord John Russell had previously given notice of his intention to move for a committee of the whole House to consider the state of legislation with regard to the trade in corn, and he now brought forward an announcement of his plan, which was to propose a fixed duty of eight shillings per quarter on wheat, and proportionately diminished rates on rye, barley, and oats. Except for its effect on the fortunes of the Melbourne ministry, there is not the slightest importance to be attached to this proposal. It was an experiment in the direction of the free traders, who were just beginning to be powerful, although they were not nearly strong enough yet to dictate the policy of a government. We shall have to tell the story of free trade hereafter, 
this present incident is no part of the history of a great movement it is merely a small party dodge it deceived no one lord melbourne had always spoken with the uttermost contempt of the free trade agitation with characteristic oaths he had declared that of all the mad things he had ever heard suggested free trade was the maddest lord john russell himself although far more enlightened than the prime minister had often condemned and sneered at the demand for free trade the conversion of the ministers into the official advocates of a moderate fixed duty was all too sudden for the conscience for the very stomach of the nation public opinion would not endure it nothing but harm came to the whigs from the attempt instead of any new adherence or fresh sympathy being won for them by their proposal people only asked will nothing then turn them out of office will they never have done with trying new tricks to keep in place sir robert peel took in homely phrase the bull by the horns he proposed a direct vote of want of confidence a resolution declaring that ministers did not possess the confidence of the house sufficiently to enable them to carry through the measures which they deemed of essential importance to the public welfare and that their continuance in office under such circumstances was at variant with the spirit of the constitution on june fourth eighteen forty one the division was taken and the vote of no confidence was carried by a majority of one even the whigs could not stand this lord melbourne at last began to think that things were looking serious parliament was dissolved and the result of the general election was that the tories were found to have a majority even greater than they themselves had anticipated the moment the new parliament was assembled amendments to the address were carried in both houses in a sense hostile to the government lord melbourne and his colleagues had to resign and sir robert peel was entrusted with the task of forming an administration we have not much more to do with lord melbourne in this history he merely drops out of it between his expulsion from office and his death which took place in eighteen forty eight he did little or nothing to call for the notice of any one it was said at one time that his closing years were lonesome and melancholy but this has lately been denied and indeed it is not likely that one who had such a genial temper and so many friends could have been left to the dreariness of a not self-sufficing solitude and to the bitterness of neglect he was a generous and kindly man his personal character although often assailed was free of any serious reproach he was a failure in office not so much from want of ability as because he was a politician without convictions the peel ministry came into power with great hopes it had lord lyndhurst for lord chancellor sir james graham for home secretary lord aberdeen at the foreign office lord stanley was colonial secretary the most remarkable man not in the cabinet soon to be one of the foremost statesmen in the country was mr w e gladstone it is a fact of some significance in the history of the peel administration that the elections which brought the new ministry into power brought mr cobden for the first time into the house of commons End of section twenty